This episode of Climactic was recorded on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. We wish to pay our respects to leaders past, present, and emerging, and we look to the traditional owners of this land, who lived in harmony with it for tens of thousands of years, as vital partners in returning to a sustainable way of life. There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. It's the rate that's a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say... The will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello and welcome to episode 52 of Climactic, coming to you a day later than the new normal release day. I'll be your host for today, Mark Spencer, and over the last couple days I have been victim of the Melbourne train apocalypse that's hit our fair city. Time that I thought I'd had to get this episode out did not eventuate, so I'm sorry I'm a day late, but luckily not a dollar short. Today's episode could easily be called the Friends of the Show edition, as we have not just the interview sent in to us from the wider community and a friend of the show, but also an update from a brand new group operating here in Melbourne's inner eastern suburbs called Kuyong Votes Climate. So that update's going to be up first, and it was sent in to us by Len Goldsmith. And just for a quick bit of context, Len has been a huge friend of the show, huge supporter. It was Len who got us in touch with Stapadani Gold Coast, as until recently Len was living on the Gold Coast and was involved with the group, and it was because of this that the Stapadani Gold Coast episode happened. But now that Len is down in Melbourne, he's thrown himself into the climate activist community, and in this update from him, you'll hear about the actions of Lighter Footprints out in Kuyong, a group whose founder, Carolyn, has been a guest on the show, also a speaker at their launch event, Tim Lacerdo, a past climactic guest. But I wasn't aware, and I'm sure a lot of you listening weren't either, of the Kuyong Votes Climate Alliance and what's going on in that blue ribbon liberal seat. So of course, we at Climactic really understand the importance of the upcoming federal election on May 18th. And it's so great to get updates from the community about how the community is organizing to make this the climate election. Thanks, Len. And now let's hear from him. Hi, it's Len here, a father of four, a grandfather of one, and climate actioneer from inner city Melbourne. I have a brief assignment today to tell climactic fans about a new climate action group called the Kuyong Climate Change Alliance, formed from three local chapters of Stopadani Get Up Australian Conservation Foundation and a well-known group of green-conscious citizens called Lighter Footprints. This alliance has one main aim, to have voters within the Blue Ribbon Liberal electorate put climate change as their number one priority when choosing their party or candidate at the soon-to-be-held federal election. A brand was created called Kuyong Votes Climate, which aims to cut straight through political posturing and point scoring to spark local citizens into making their vote count towards much stronger action on tackling the climate emergency. For this first instalment, I will take you inside the official launch night and record future updates on how the campaign is going, which is made up of over 100 volunteers, all eager to contribute. The Kuyong Votes Climate campaign launch saw well over 200 people fill a school hall keen to learn more on this grassroots initiative. First up was Elsie, a young schoolgirl who pleaded eloquently 
for adults in general to get our acts together and do whatever we can to ensure a safe future for her and for future generations. Next up was Rod Quintock, maybe Australia's only global warming comedian, shares some light-hearted rants pointed at the main protagonists in media and politics who are the blockers to change. We pretty much know who they are. Rod dropped a couple of climate basics such as that CO2 concentrations have gone from a pre-industrial level of 280 parts per million to a current high of around 411 parts per million. Rod also cited a 1958 film called Unchained Goddess that depicted what scientists knew about the potential of global warming decades ago. You can easily view the film on YouTube. The mission of the launch was to start building the biggest grassroots volunteer army within the 120-year-old electorate of Kuyong to engage voters using many tactics to change and consolidate hearts and minds to see climate change as a voting priority. On next was a young and very articulate climate justice advocate named Tim Lacerdo, who spoke about the injustice of countries who have contributed the least to global warming will stand to lose the most from the impacts of sea level rise and food security. Tim went on to applaud the power of people and said that groups like the KVC Alliance can win big battles by being as organised and resourceful with people's energy as our corporate and political entities are with big wads of cash and donations. What a gem of inspiration that was. Tim said the incumbent member of Kuyong, Josh Frydenberg, has up to $1 million at his disposal for huge billboard slogans and gimmicks like free shopping bags emblazoned with his name. Several locals were then asked from the audience to tell why they were at the launch and what climate change meant to them. A woman shared personal observations as a bird enthusiast saying that migratory patterns and breeding cycles have changed dramatically in recent years. The main event of the night had to be the call to action across several categories for volunteers to start the army. It was all arms up and instant enthusiasm. One important action was to have 60,000 election scorecards hand-delivered by those in the room. Those were happily taken home. The scorecards showed the parties and candidates' results on climate action based on a 10-page questionnaire developed by an expert panel. This really exposed major flaws and indifferences on climate action and will inform voters of who really cares about dealing with this crisis. Over 20 people stood up to be climate leaders and build their own group of volunteers to hit the local shopping strips to have meaningful conversations. Locals will also be asked to sign a personal climate action pledge. Other volunteer duties that were filled on the night included social media help, data entry and volunteer liaison. Fence signs showing the Kuyong Votes climate slogan were also handed out to increase public awareness. The end of the meeting saw people going home with a plan that may just change history in this electorate by having a representative that is committed to strong action on climate change. I really hope you got something from this short recount. I look forward to sharing the next update. Regards, Len. And thanks again to Len Goldsmith of Kuyong Votes Climate. I know I am really looking forward to further updates on what's happening with that campaign. Any progress, any excitement. I know there's already been a little bit with a recent candidates forum where climate was the core issue. And there was some progress to be seen in the fact that the current Liberal MP and Federal Treasurer Josh Frydenberg actually showed up for that panel. I'm not sure if he said anything too amazing after that, but we look forward to a further update to hear about it. All right, now on to our main interview for the episode. So we're already out east in Kuyong. Let's go a little bit further now and out to Knox. 
Knox is one of these areas of Melbourne that have seen rapid growth and development in the last few decades. And like a lot of other places that are urbanizing and developing, there's a tension between that development and the environment. So in this interview, you'll hear how groups like Greening Knox, First Friends of Dandenong Creek, and grassroots environmental groups all over Melbourne, and yes, all over the world, are pushing back on development. You'll hear in this interview why it's so important, what's at stake, and also how to go about it effectively, understanding the process. Now, this process, of course, may be different in your local area where you're listening, but you'll hear in this interview some really good examples of best practice and the best way to go about getting effective change happening in your local area. So even if you don't live in Melbourne or you've never been out to Lake Knox, that doesn't really matter because I think we in the environmental community can learn a lot from each other. And I really thank Anthony, Darren, and Bruna for sharing this story. And if this is something that has resonated with you and you do care about this area, or you can see that these locals care about their area and want to help them protect it, please sign their petition. It's the top link in the show notes for this episode. All right, so without further ado, here's the interview. And we'll see you next Saturday for our next episode. Uh, g'day there. Uh, my name is Darren Wallace, and I'm involved with a community Facebook group called Greening Knox. And we're here today with Anthony and Bruna to talk about the Lake Knox and Bluebill Duck, which is uh, under threat. Now, both of you are local residents. That's right, we yeah. Are. Yep. And Bruna, you were saying a little earlier, you don't know much about the site, where Anthony knows a fair bit about the site. So between the three of us, I think we've got plenty to offer. We're going to talk about the Lake Knox site in the context that it's currently proposed to be redeveloped. There's going to be commercial and residential activities and open space provided on this location. Anthony, have you got a bit of information about the background to the site? Yeah, so at, at the moment, well, not at the moment, but it was previously owned by the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning, which is DELP. And uh, DELP have got their uh, one of their regional offices out here in Knoxville. And it was originally used as a, what would you say, a research? It was a research institute, in fact, and they, as I understand it, in the 70s and 80s, trialled grains and crops and plants and did plant pathology type work. Yep, yep. so it was an agricultural research centre. Centre, yeah, that's yep. probably the best way to describe it. Yep. And for those that don't know, it faces Burwood Highway and runs down behind Fairhill Secondary School all the way to Blind Creek, and you can get a very good vista of this site from being on the bike path and looking up the hill and in doing that you'll be looking straight over mm. Lake Knox. We'll talk more about Lake Knox maybe in a minute. So the government deemed this site surplus to their requirements in about 2017 mm-hmm. and that started a process at a local government level where... What does it actually mean surplus to their requirements? Oh, they want to sell it and the government wants to make money. Right. They, don't, they don't seem to need it anymore. Yep. Uh, can I intervene there? Um, so DELP is a Department for Environment, Land, Water. Why would they see something like this as surplus to their requirements? If before was being a research centre, I mean, surely they have to uh, comply with regulations that protects the environment. Yeah, they've probably chosen to move because land values in Melbourne's outer east are pretty high. I think they might have... If they are doing research, they might have decentralised their research. They now might be doing it at the back of Patchewallock or Beulah or somewhere like that. Land values are very high. And the proximity of this location to Knox City and the council's municipal offices 
is is pretty close and and similarly land values are very high so we're seeing a lot of infill development going on in Knox in green, greenfield sites residential housing and I just think uh, for me the the um, the temptation by the government to realize their asset is pretty great here at maybe the expense of some of the environmental attributes of the site. Yeah, because it's significant in terms of what they'll be able to make from the site at the moment. So, you know, the, the example is the, the DELP offices sit at one end of the block and Lake Knox sits at the other end of the block, but it's still effectively the same lot of land. Yeah, and we're talking presumably hundreds of millions of dollars worth yeah. of land value. Most of the site is, in, in government speak, a non-performing asset, and that probably is not the concern of the community, you know, the vast grassed paddocks. It's at the bottom of the hill near where it meets Blind Creek. There's a an artificial lake. Probably when it was first built, it was built for the purposes of harvesting water for the site's activities. But over the years it's been built, it's developed quite a unique ecosystem. And in particular, studies on that site looking at its faunal and flora values revealed the presence of a number of rare and endangered species locally and uh, those species were plants and animals but in particular it found that this lake was used quite extensively by the blue-billed duck which is uh, an endangered species in Victoria and uniquely it's a duck that is a diving duck as opposed to a wood duck that or, or a black duck that just tends to sort of forage at surface level. These diving ducks require deep water, and that's probably the key thing about Lake Knox here. And, and generally, too, they, they prefer to be unsocial in the sense that they'd like to sit in the middle of the lake as well, too. So they're not they're not close to the edges at all. They'll be sitting out there and they'll be sort of minding their own business. But as, as Darren says, you know, they'll be then deep diving down to pick up their, their food and the other um, uh, flora that's in there as well, yep. feeding off that. Yeah, yeah. In particular, there's um, the, the, the floor of that lake is covered in a plant called eelgrass. So that's a, a submerged aquatic plant, and that submerged aquatic plant only really grows in deep water lakes locally. And in fact, only grows in about six or seven lakes in the municipality of Knox and further afield you might find it at Listerfield Lake. But a combination of that aquatic flora, the depth of the water, a bit of seclusion that currently exists at this site, given it is fenced, even though it's quite near a bike path, it is relatively quiet for a range of species there, it has provided this perfect location for blue-billed ducks to not breed but to reside. And um, certainly they can be seen regularly throughout the year. And the report that was produced by Graham Lorimer, a renowned ecological expert in this area, suggested that this was one of three or four key sites that the blue-billed duck would habit and probably moves from site to site. But there's only just enough sites to maintain a a local population. So the great danger here is that you pull one of those sites out of the equation and all of a sudden there's not that critical mass for them to move around. And it's it's not as though it's... What will happen is if um, the Development Victoria... So if Development Victoria proceed with their intended plan, which is to basically fill the lake in and then create new wetlands. The main issue there is that we're not recreating the same type of wetland. It'll be filled in, which you can argue quite clearly, why would you fill in an ecosystem that's already functioning and working and providing habitat and, and food for the, for the species that are there to have to have it recreated as well too. But the underlying issue there is that it will be recreated 
uh, in size but not in capacity. So this, this deep aspect is being taken away and it's being basically reused to filter stormwater further. Mm. Which is a good thing to do, but maybe not at the expense of a pre-existing somewhat unique habitat. And this is the real trick to the argument that the development in Victoria seemed to think that, you know, they can they can pull the wool over the community's eyes by arguing that we're going to make it better habitat for a range of species. And they may well be doing so, but they won't be making it better habitat for the endangered species that are currently there. Which yep. raises the other point too that, you know, Delp have virtually just wiped their hands of the site and just said, right, here you go, Development Victoria, you can look after it. The concern there is that they've clearly got a moral obligation to look after endangered species. And you would think so, you would given so. they are the government department entrusted with the responsibility of doing that at a local level and at a, at a state level, they have to operate under their own Act of Parliament or follow their own Act of Parliament, which is the Flora and Fauna Guarantee Act of 1988, which covers the blue-billed duck as an endangered species. Yeah. So, yeah, it seemed a bit weird that the Government Department entrusted with the responsibility for managed threatened species, flora and fauna, have, as you say, just wiped their hands off it. Yeah. That's just the biodiversity side of things. You also have the sustainability side of things with the climate change and removing the green spaces, which will increase temperature. Yeah, in the yeah. heat Ireland urban effect. Yeah. We have a lot of residences already in Knox. We are having less and less green spaces. And you know more than I do, Darren, because you're from Greening. It's, it's not good news. I love Knox because of the tall trees. I moved here and I fell in love with it. But now finding out, you know, just a few meters away from my house, that that other space that I could potentially visit more is not going to be there anymore. Mm. You know, the lake is going to go and the, and the species are going to go with it. The other argument that Development Victoria put, which they seem to think is compelling in their mind, is that they need to remove the lake because the dam wall, well, they would call it a dam, we call it a lake, uh, it is in fact a lake, the wall of the lake, which is artificial, is not fit for purpose in the, and it doesn't meet a standard called the Ankol standard which reservoirs and retarding basins around Melbourne have to be brought up to. And most people will have noticed somewhere in Melbourne a retarding basin that's had significant re-engineering works done on it in recent times. It certainly happened locally at, at Riddell Road retarding, retarding Basin, which is known as Lakewood. Old Joe's Creek's had it. Most of the retarding basins are getting this work. So it's not unusual to expect to have to maintain an asset like that? No. And the wall at Lake Knox... The artificial wall that holds the water back is is a relatively small one, quite benign in fact, compared to the size of some of the retarding basin walls that you'll find around Melbourne. So from an engineering perspective, on face value, it just seems frankly lazy that they would choose not to to do that engineering work to make it safe, given their, their great argument is it's not safe. It's worthwhile noting that I've had somebody look at this site who's involved in those sorts of wall restoration works and... They simply said it's just a matter of money. Mm. Um, the problem is that there's no will by Development Victoria. They seem headstrong about changing it to suit their design attributes for whatever reason, and that's really disappointing. It's been retasked as a, a stormwater system to do filtration, uh, which will totally obliterate what's currently in there. 
And the other part of it too is there's no guarantee that what is there will ever return as well. So it's a very lazy approach that's mm. been adopted. Constructed wetlands, shallow wetlands, which perform stormwater functions, water-sensitive design, frankly are a dime a dozen, both in Knox and both in Melbourne, because every new development these days usually has some sort of treatment, a shallow wetland, an ephemeral wetland, one that is not deep water. There's very few deep water lakes around and there's certainly very few being created. You might find a few in Mill Park or somewhere like that, but, but not out here locally. So water-sensitive urban design treatments that are shallow, improve biodiversity for some species, but certainly not for the bluebill duck and certainly not for a range of other species and certainly does not create like for like. And just, just to clarify a point that I made earlier too that I didn't clarify further was that the, the capacity is being reduced. It's being reduced by a third. 30 megalitres at the moment, it's dropping down to 20 megalitres. Oh. So, you know, it's not a like-for-like comparison at all. No, and we, we, we mustn't allow the community to be conned by these How much pretty does the pictures. community know? I mean, I got involved about this, yeah. but I'm not sure how much other people in the area know about it. So we might just go through the process that I suppose led to, you know, what's going on recently. So, yeah, in 2017, there had to be some sort of overarching uh, review of or alteration to the planning scheme to allow the site to be disposed of and redeveloped. I can't remember exactly the details, but it, it presented at local government and, and it went through sort of no great concern to local government. It just was a process that had to occur. There was also an opportunity for the community to get involved You'll just have to talk me through the various words that, that related to that consultation process. What was that? There was a, there was a, pub, a series of community consultation meetings run by Development Victoria. Mm-hmm. There was a period where the community were provide, to provide feedback on what they'd heard in the proposal, yep. and that did occur. Yep, but you could only ever object based on planning. Yeah. You can never object based on environmental concerns mm-hmm. for it. And no one has dug in deeper to see about the Environment Conservation Act, if well, there is anything there to, to, to counteract that? Well, that's, that's one of the other things that's occurred too, is that the, the planning restrictions that were there, there was an overlay, there was an environmental overlay, that's been removed as well too. So what's the best way of explaining that? Because there was a, question. There was a whatever it was called, EVO something that, that was there, that was removed so that they could then do whatever they wanted to do at that particular point and replace it with the new, is it CDL standard? There was a panel hearing that was held where those that provided input to the consultation process were, were able to speak at the panel hearing. Uh, that was an independent panel hearing where Development Victoria, I think, no, the government appointed a number of uh, independent people to hear the concerns of the community. There was excellent representation by the community. Yeah, there's 130 plus objections. Yeah, it. yeah. So that was a really good campaign that was run locally. So picking up, Bruna, on your question of when did the community start to hear about that, probably when this process was underway. About a year ago to, you know, or a little more than a year ago, there was a, an on-site public meeting which had... 80, 90, maybe 100 people attended and got a bit of a rundown on what was happening. Had that's good. good, yeah. Excellent. excellent yeah, turnout, yeah, that's yeah, good. Turnout by, and uh, at the time, uh, st- state members all took an interest. We had uh, Samantha Dunn, who's no longer in the, the government, uh, but um, we had the Liberal member Nick Wakeling attend and... Representatives from Knox Environment Society were there as well. Yep, 
yep. a few of the other friends groups. Yep, in the area. some of the councillors from Knox City Council came along, and importantly, lots of local residents, people that that use the bike track, people that yeah. like the the open space. Like uh, I do, I love cycling, and I love to be cycling safely in the creeks, in the blind creeks, the trails, rather than on the roads. Yeah, sure. Yeah. From that public meeting, that increased. I suppose the the visuals of what was going on down there because it is it is set back unless you sort of know where to look for you can certainly see quite clearly from the creek and mm. from the from the bike path as well but because it is behind a, a fence you know quite a high fence as well too it's probably not front of mind for everyone no in recent months the development Victoria folks have presented to the community their not so much their plans but you know, their desire to have a dialogue, you know, dialogue in their, in their mind might be different to the dialogue in the communities. Their dialogue seems to be, well, we'll tell you what's happening and you'll just sort of, you'll get to tweak the margins of what's happening as opposed to provide any meaningful input into how it will be delivered. And I think it's really worthwhile noting that most of the community are not overly concerned about what Development Victoria does with the commercial aspect of it up the front on Burwood Highway, not particularly concerned about the the housing, even the housing densities. I think, in fact, there's broader grants that probably it's a good location to put some um, above and beyond social housing in because there's no doubt that there will be some significant open space left on the site, which is a good thing. But community's greater concern, I think, is about the loss of the lake habitat and how all that ends up interacting with the the creek network, providing access to the public. And it's a bit of a tricky situation because if you've got rare and threatened species on a site, Sometimes providing access to the broader public is not the best answer, you know, but I'm sure engineering folk can work out a design that provides maintenance of the lake, um, improved habitat, water-sensitive urban design and increased accessibility by the broader community. I'm sure they could do it if they wanted to. And one of the things you could do, just coming back to the step about there's no major concerns about the density of the housing that occurs there, but you could still factor in redesigning the way that, let's say, stormwater is taken from the site. You could do a progressive filtration as it comes down the site and it runs through different levels of filtration at the street level. Rather than running all the water straight into the lake itself, there are certainly elements that you would like to see included. So that filtration is occurring at a street level as it goes through, so that everything is doesn't dumped into the um, into the lake going forward. Do we know exactly what the plan and proposal is on how many houses, how many retail offices no. they're going to? Yeah, not specifically. They... I think generically, you couldn't put a number on it, but there's a there's a sort of an overall vibe of what's proposed. Um, is there intention? Is it the intention of Development Victoria to formalise this planning and show it to the community? I don't think they're at that stage because I think what they have to do, as I understand it, Development Victoria are currently the meat and the sandwich. They're, they're lining up all their ducks, every pun intended here, for the purposes of putting it out to a developer. Does that is that what happens? Because they don't do the development themselves, but they'll choose someone to actually roll out the the civil construction work and start the housing stuff. But Development Victoria have to get it all in a situation where that can happen. That's probably the fairest way of saying it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is there any way that the community can still stop that from happening? Oh, I think it's unlikely. Well, a couple of things. I think it's unlikely you could stop the development, and I think it's probably unlikely that. 
the community needs to stop the development. It's it's just a matter of about getting a development that delivers the best the, the you know the quadruple bottom line, the best outcome for everything and everybody, including rare and threatened species that are in, on the site. And and those rare and threatened species are fundamentally down the bottom of the site, closest to the Blind Creek, where there's not actually going to be any construction activities from housing or commercial developments, only about, you know, it's reserved open space down there, but it's the delivery of the open space, the alteration of the open space that's the problem. Is Development Victoria open to having an ecologist part of their team for the development? They are, yeah, and they're looking at the moment for someone. They are, yeah, right. Maybe looking at the moment for someone that supports their view because, in fact, this council, Knox City Council, they actually engaged, as I say, the services of Graham Lorimer, quite a renowned ecological consultant, and he made it abundantly clear in his report that the loss of the lake and any disturbance to the lake at that level would probably have a, a profound effect on the population of the blue-billed duck locally. Mm. Uh, interestingly, council conveniently sort of hid that report under the carpet when they came to talking about it two years ago because it didn't sort of sit so well with with their approach. Yep. You know, progress is good. So you want to stop progress. Exactly. Just to give everyone a sort of an idea, is there some way of giving examples of things that are already around in Melbourne that people could say, oh, I kind of get where you're getting at now with this. I mean, the only thing that comes to mind is Blackburn Lake. Yeah, and whether or not... Blackburn Lake was even a pre-existing lake. I doubt it was. It's on a little creek, so it was probably it was probably a, a, a man-made lake at some point in time, and then housing got built around it. Look, arguably Ringwood Lake too has those same attributes. It's yep. it's got high density commercial residential near it and around it, with public parks and and open space near it, and it's it's much loved. Yep. much loved. Ringwood Lake probably doesn't have those same environmental values just because of where it's located, but Blackburn yes. Lake has. Quite high environmental values. But Ringwood Lake's actually a good example of where there's clearly stormwater that's being fed into it, and it's becoming, certainly from an observation point of view, it's becoming highly polluted, at least from a, uh, the number of probably the sorry the amount of sediment that's in there at the moment. And that's an example where you will take away if it's not handled very very carefully the flora that's in that lake. If it's not handled and it, it becomes covered with sediment, it'll die which means then the, the ducks obviously can't feed and the ducks don't come back as well too. So there's this very, very careful trade-off that has to occur or a very careful process that has to occur between keeping the lake in place, keeping the ecology that's still there as well too, objecting to the development. It needs to be sensitive to development anyway because you know we are experiencing heat island effects that are occurring. There needs to be a lot of vegetation throughout the, the residential areas on that block anyway too. But anything that has to be done has to be thought through. And that's not what we're seeing. We're not seeing anything in that space that's, that, that there's clear thought and clear concern about moving and allowing a, a development to occur in there and keeping what we've got. Mm. Bruni, you asked about whether or not Development Victoria, you know, there was an appetite for, for them to have those scientific consultants, those experts, and they were looking for them. They certainly have indicated in public meetings that, they're happy to have all that occurring. The problem is, from my perspective, that they say they're happy to have people involved, but, but they're not happy at this point to have any alteration to the plan to remove the lake. So 
it's a bit hard to know, you know, what the discussion is going to be about in the future when they say it's not negotiable, the loss of the lake. Is there potential to obtain funding to contract an environmental lawyer? Because I think we need to use the law for this. That's the only way to maybe uh, be heard uh, using the law. There must be something in a law that will make them see sense and reconsider their plans and take the environment more seriously. Because they may be short-sighted just thinking about the financial benefits, but the community in Knox is not going to gain much in the long term when you consider that we had two degrees hotter summer than the baseline for Victoria. So that's a lo- a really hot. This is my first summer in Melbourne, and that was extremely hot. So you have been living here more than I have all your yeah. lives, and you probably noticed more than I have. Get used to it too. <laughs> yeah, you're right. So it is getting hotter, and people are unhappy about this. And bushfires are coming closer to, to our homes. People have been talking about, oh, this is in Gippsland, but it could have been in Belgrave, and God knows, maybe Knox next. I don't think anyone will want to have bushfires in there backyard well we, we have had in the past but yeah all the more reason to make it more frequent it's really interesting because as, as a deep water water body um it, it actually has the potential to be an important uh you know refuge for wildlife but it also has the potential to be an important source of short-term water um you know speaking of fires and whatnot we hope that it's never required but uh i remember when there was a fire in the dandenongs and the the ericsson helicopters were sucking water out of the liverpool road retarding basin because it was the nearest closest water body so yeah look it's 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 probably not a powerful argument to maintain a deep water lake, but it, it couldn't do any harm having a deep water lake as opposed to dried out ephemeral wetlands. And arguably, you could have your cake and eat it at this site. Well, there's no doubt we need to have our cake and eat it. We need to have a series of water-sensitive urban designs and ephemeral wetlands that strip nutrients from the massive development that it'll be, you know, with residential and construction and commercial. It'll all fall to the to the blind creek so it's very important that all this sediment all this water all this runoff is intercepted before it gets to the blind creek and that's only done by a series of and because i cycle i also noticed that the blind creek in some areas is completely dry yeah it's mm. uh, it's not a pleasant site so it is important that this is reviewed for mm-hmm. sure yeah. and also because it's a lake and there are very few lakes around uh in ox as from an, an aerial photograph i've seen and so the migratory birds, they need these stops mm. to carry on. Yeah. It's important for their survival. We may be, you know, you mentioned about the blue-billed duck, but there may be other species of birds that are stopping there to carry on at some point. And if that's not there, what's going to happen to them? Because yeah. they need water. And I, I've, I've read that some birds, they, they actually start dying at, when they reach 37 degrees because if they can't drink fresh water, they, they die at the same you know, within hours. Yeah. So it's this, this all very sad. Has the potential to be an important refuge for for a range of wildlife, particularly transient stuff like waterfowl. Really, it's a you know unique opportunity to capitalise on that. And just imagine that deep water lake being maintained with a series of water sensitive urban design treatments around it, some boardwalks, some supplementary plantings, some interpretive information. What a resource for the broader community and in particular the community, the new community that's going to be living adjacent to that site. But certainly one of the clear things um, to me though is that the, the high school, which is adjoining and further uphill from, from the lake, 
part of the stormwater is actually coming from the high school too. Now, in terms of a learning outcome for the kids, I mean, you've got a number of locally rare and state-based endangered you know, species that are there. What an amazing outcome that their school, in a way, is actually providing water to the lake. They could be champions for this, this whole area and champions for the bluebill duck. I mean, that's a, that's a phenomenal outcome. Mm. But that's not taken into account because no one can, you know, bring that sort of connection in place at this particular point because we're all very conscious of the intentions of Development Victoria, you know, to dispose of it and get rid of it. Mm. My take-home message for anybody and everybody is don't be conned. Uh, like for like, you know, is different to creating a series of shallow ephemeral wetlands connected to water sensitive urban design and having no deep water lake. They're just not the same. And as much as bureaucrats will try and make you think they are, for whatever reason, they're not. And the consequences on changing that habitat are both profound for the wildlife and profound for the flora, but also profound for the community because that'll be one less deep water lake in our municipality and in our region. And every time you remove one of these deep water lakes or, or any particular ecosystem, there'll be a flow-on effect, as we were talking about, and, and we don't necessarily know what those flow-on effects are about. And the only thing I was going to say too is if you'd like to go and sign the, the, the campaign, uh, there's a petition that's online. If you go to www.kes.org.au, which is the Knox Environment Society's website, there's a page on there that has information uh, including emailing the local members of parliament. There's the contacts in there from Development Victoria and DELP in there as well too, so you're welcome to email uh, representatives from those organisations. And as I say, there's a, a link also on there. There's a, a change.org. I've signed um, it. You've signed it? Yeah, definitely. Excellent. Don. If, if you want to get a good visual of the lake and the, the surrounds, jump onto my Facebook page. There was a, a good drone video taken, which I think incidentally has had 10,000 views. That's right. Yep. Well, well done to that video. It, it really does help you get uh, the vibe of the site. Yeah, absolutely. And, and recognise what an important water body it is. And this is an important campaign because Victoria is launching this new slogan of the state of the future and for it to be the state of the future, it has to think sustainable. Yeah. Not just short-term gains in financial terms. Filling in lakes and redesigning stuff and not being particularly concerned about wildlife is very 1980s, isn't it? Mm, yeah. It is very... Not future at all, is not it? Not progressive. No. For a government that argues that it's progressive, uh, it's you know... Backwards. Talk is cheap sometimes. Mm, there's nothing strategic about it at all. No. Very easy and simple and quick. Well, I reckon that's about us done. Thanks for your time, Bruno. Oh, you're welcome. It was a pleasure. Thanks, I just hope we can... Thanks, make a difference. And we'll see you all out there at Lake Knox at some stage in the future. Thank you. Thank you. This has been a production of Climactic, a podcast collective helping local communities tell their extraordinary stories. It's our mission to help elevate the voices of the everyday heroes we're surrounded by and inspire, sustain, and motivate the climate community. We love working with local environmental groups individuals, nonprofits, and social enterprises. So if you've got a story to tell, please just get in touch. The Climactic Collective is Mark Spencer, Rich Bowden, Maxine Baisley, Georgia Scheel, and Bronwyn Gresham. Our producer is Hazel Fidicaro. 
Our digital design is by Rose Fidicara. Our climactic theme is produced by Greg Grassi, and our logo designed by Abigail Hawkins. We're also pleased to feature the music of the General Assembly. Thank you for listening to Climactic, the podcast for our climactic times. The Climactic Collective. This show is produced by Hear Media a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H-E-R-E media.studio. Studio.